Good morning, church. Um, this morning, we have our second to last sermon in our DNA series. Uh, we'll be wrapping up at the end of the month. So with this DNA series, we've been looking at it a little bit scientifically, but more practically. Um, scientifically, we know that DNA is the carrier of genetic information. So we've kind of summarized that to say, when we talk about our DNA as HBIC, this is the essence of who we are. Also, DNA is a self-replicating material, which means it reproduces itself. So what we're saying through this series is, it's not enough for us to say this is who we are, but what we're saying is this is who we are, but this is also who we're actively living to produce, right? We're all called to not just be disciples of God or disciples of Christ, but we're called to be disciples who go and make disciples. So your DNA as an organization for us as a church is, you know, the basic distinctive characteristics of who you are. So for us in, these, in this series, we're trying to spell out, this is what makes us unique. This is the essence of who we are. But more than that, though, this is our call. This is how we follow God together. Now, this morning for this series, um, for this sermon, we're going to be talking about the idea of of pursuing peace and reconciliation. Now, a lot of times around here we talk about peace, we start out on the, the, the macro level. We start out with big. You know, we talk about how we pursue peace by choosing life over death. So that means that we are the all-life people, which means that we, we love the baby in the womb, but we also think it's important when that baby comes out to care for the baby. It means that we think it's important for people to have quality of life. We think it's important for people to actually experience what God has for them. We don't necessarily believe in the least of these in the sense of we think everyone's equal. Revolutionary, I know. We think that God loves everyone. Revolutionary, I know. We think that our citizenship is in heaven and that we work together for God's kingdom and not necessarily our own or even America's kingdom. That's what we believe. We're the life people. But now how we, we take on that life is that we choose nonviolence, right? We say that we will choose nonviolence. And that shows up not just in saying we do not go to war, right? We choose life. It means that we got to rethink, for those of us, you know, we got to rethink death penalty. We got to rethink what it means to have quality of life, what it means to have access to health, what it means to, to not be an immigrant but my brother, right? It means that we are looking at these macro issues. It also means that we got to be the fighters of systemic injustice. If there's a law or there's a system or there's things we're doing to oppress and keep people down, we as the life people will speak up and will fight those systems of injustice justice because we're either ripping them down or we're upholding them. There's no in between. If you see injustice, you're either working to rip it away or you're living to keep it and propping it up. That's the macro level. But the, this morning, I want to focus a little bit on the micro level. We kind of tap into this a little when we learn that, you know, through Jesus Christ, because of what he did on Calvary's tree, we can have peace with God. But the macro level is Jesus came for the world. The, the, the micro or small level says, yes, you can have peace with God. But the challenge is having peace with each other. The work is to pursue peace and reconciliation. And that's why this morning I chose Jacob and Laban. Because the thinking here is simply this. If these two... <laughs> out of any two, can come to a place of peace and reconciliation, how much more shall we in our relationships with each other? If you have your Bible, um, turn to me with Genesis chapter 31. I'll be reading verses 45 to 55. We'll also have it up on the screen so you can follow along. Now, one thing I will say is that this is actually the conclusion 
of the Jacob Laban epic, right? When you look at the whole story, this is the conclusion of how they ended up in a space and a place of peace and reconciliation. So uh, like, like, like for me, if you tell me I got to read 800 pages to get Dostoevsky, I don't really like you very much. If you tell me I got to read the last chapter and I'll get everything out of it, I love you. We're best friends, right? So what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to give you the ending of the story, and then we're going to kind of recap a little bit. So if you have your Bibles, again, um, Genesis 31, verses 45 to 55, starting at 45. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, and Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, the heap is a witness between you and me today. That is why it was called Galid. It was also called Mizpah. Because he said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. If you mistreat my daughters or if you take any wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. Laban also said to Jacob, here is the heap and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. The heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home. Let's pray together. Father, our God, we thank you this morning that you watch over the world, but you watch over us. That you care about all things, including our relationships, including us personally and how we're living in our everyday scenes. God, we pray this morning that we're willing to pledge to not only remember, but to hold on to the fact that you're a witness in how we live and how we love and how we interact with each other in the relationship that we have. God, help us to remember that we have been forgiven so that we are free to forgive that we have been loved so that we are free to love. Lord, we thank you that you're not just a witness. You're not just the one who watches over us. You're the one who carries us through. In your holy and precious name, amen. So this morning we're going to talk about pursuing peace and reconciliation. Um, one of my, uh, I think, pet peeves, man, but it sounds like not harsh enough, you know. But one of the things ever since I was younger, um, and, and people, like, actually, got, it used to confuse me, then I got angry, right. Is when people would come up and be like, I just want to be a biblical person. I just want to be a biblical family. And I would always be like, which biblical family are you talking about? You know, like, like which one are you trying to follow? You know, like when you say a biblical person, like which, which laws are you following, right? And I would always say, you know, now if you mean by that that you want to live to honor God, wonderful. If you mean by that that you want to live to submit and be led by the Holy Spirit, beautiful. If you mean by that that you want to live and love like Christ and be Christ-like, amazing. But when we say, you know, I want to be biblical, we have to be really careful that we don't make Scripture, the Word of God, the fourth member of the Trinity, right? And those of you who are good at math, you know, like, there can't be four in the Trinity, right? Real good at math. That's how we are, right? But what we need to understand about Scripture And I think when we talk about being biblical, what we need to understand about Scripture is that, one, it comes from God. But the story of Scripture, this is like 101. You can take this. This is free, right? Um, The story of Scripture is this. God is the hero of the story. 
God is the hero of the story. What happens time and time again is we see as people we fall short and God still loves us. And we learn from Scripture that God's love for us is not dependent on our faithfulness. God's love for us is not dependent on our goodness. God's love for us is not even dependent on us being perfect. God loves us, yes. God is faithful, yes. But God is the one who's the real hero of the story. So when people say, you know, I want to be a biblical person or a biblical family, and I, I always think about Jacob and Laban. Right? To say their relationship was problematic and troublesome would be underselling it a little bit. Now, you have to understand, though, before you get to Laban, you see generations of problematic behavior. This is why it gets dangerous when you say you want to be a biblical family, and I always say, which one? Right? Because you see generations of problematic, troublesome, terrible behavior. In fact, you know, Jacob's grandfather was a guy by the name of Abraham the great man of faith, right, who God made him this promise. And, yes, he had to wait decades upon decades for the promise. But remember he tried to help God along? You know, he had an idea of, like, I'm going to help God along. I'm going to follow the, the, the sexual mores of this day and age, and, and I'm going to have a child with Hagar, and that's going to be the son of promise, right? And you remember his father Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac, after he came, was the son of promise, and he meets Rebekah, and they get married, and Rebekah was barren. So they prayed for God to, 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 to have a child, to continue this blessing, to continue the promise. And, and when, the, the, when Rebekah got pregnant, you know, she had twins. And I think it's Isaac who says, you know, it's almost as if two nations are warring inside of you. And when Isaac and Rebekah had the twins, they named them Esau and Jacob. And then they do something, again, this is why you don't want to be a biblical family, right? They do something that no parent should ever do, right? They pick favorites. You know, Isaac goes, you know, I mean, you know, I like meat. I like to eat. Esau hunts. He cooks delicious meat. That's my guy, you know? And, and Rebecca goes, you know, I love Jacob. He just loves to hang around the tent, you know? Like whenever I need something, he's there. He's just so great, you know? So that's her favorite. Now, again, when you want to be a biblical family, they're not your role models. Because if you are a parent of more than one child, right, or if you're in charge of anyone, thou shall not have favorites. Now, this also appeals to grandparents because they break every rule, you know. Like my children didn't know that soda existed until grandparents, right. Like they didn't even know. Like it was not even on their radar. We come home and we're like, oh, awesome, Coca-Cola, yay. Brian Stevens tells this story about um, his grandmother in his book, Just Mercy. And he talks about how Big Mama, I think is what he called her, and, and Big Mama, every time, no matter what was going on, would give him this big hug and a kiss, and he would just feel her presence everywhere, even when she let go. He loved her. And one of the things he loved her for is because every time they would talk, she would remind him what? You're my favorite. Again, grandparent, break every rule, right? Um, but then a couple years later, you know, he's sitting out in the field, I think, with one of his other cousins. And I don't know if he did something to disappoint Big Mama, but something had happened. And he's talking to his cousin. He's like, man, I really let her down. You know, like I was her, her favorite and everything. And, and his cousin goes, oh, <laughs> she got you too, didn't she? Yeah, she tells all of us that we're the favorite, right? Now that might slide. As grandparents, I might let that slide, right? But generally speaking, as a parent, it's not good right? To have favorites. Now, those of us who have siblings, we're sitting here, we're like, man, where was Hank when my parents were in church? You know, like, it'd be nice for them to know that because we know who the favorite in the family is, right? But the thing about Isaac and Rebecca is they choose their favorites. And what's even more problematic wasn't just that they chose favorites, was that everyone in the family knew. 
There's no one you can go to and be like, who's Isaac's favorite? Oh, Esau, yeah. <laughs> who's Rebecca? Oh, Jacob. Like they all knew it, right? So this is the biblical family. <laughs> Everything starts off just problematic, and it continues that way. A couple years later, as the boys grow, you know, Esau goes out hunting. He comes back from the hunt, and he catches nothing, right? And he's hungry, and he's famished. And in that culture, your birthright was part of your inheritance. As the firstborn, that's what Esau should have gotten. But Esau's hungry. He's also probably a teenager, so he's a little dramatic, right? So Jacob, smart, you know, and wily and crafty, says, hey, um, I know I have this stew here, but um, why don't you sell me that birthright? You know, you, you give me the birthright, and you can eat as much as you want. And Esau thinks to himself, well, I mean, what's, what's the point of the birthright if I'm dead, right? Again, like, no one's going to feed him except this dude, right? He's just like, what's the point of a, you know, if I'm dead, I don't need the birthright. And he sells it to his brother. Needless to say, this has a little tension in the relationship, right? That the, the oldest firstborn has now given over his birthright for a bowl of stew. But worse than the birthright one, again, biblical family, is what happens with Rebecca. And Jacob, and how they lie, how they deceive Isaac to get the blessing to Jacob. Remember, Esau was the favorite. They also had different, you know, skins. <laughs> I don't know how else to say, you know. Esau, we know, was hairy, you know. Isaac was probably from Africa or West Africa like me, and he's not that hairy, right? They knew they were different, right? So they actually, while Esau is told by Isaac to go out and get a hunt, and to prepare a meal how Isaac liked it so he can get the blessing. Rebecca hears it, and she goes, well, I mean, obviously the blessing's for my favorite. <laughs> you know, like, why would we give it to Esau, your favorite? So while Esau is out, she has Jacob get the animals, and she prepares it, and she even takes their skin and put it on them, and they deceive and they lie to Isaac. And Isaac gives the greater blessing to Jacob. Again, biblical family. Needless to say, this brought a little bit of tension in the relationship because Esau comes back and he goes, what do you mean you already gave away my blessing? Can I get at least something? And his blessing, when you read it in Genesis, it's definitely the secondary blessing. You know, it's not the one of promise. And Esau is angry. And Rebecca realizes this. And Rebecca is smart. You know, like, eventually someone's going to get the blessing. And we live in a world where sometimes, you know, might... <laughs> matters more than what's right, you know? And if you're doing your math, you know, it's just like, if they are going to go to war, who am I going to put my stock in? The one who hunts all the time and hunts animals or the one who hangs out with me in the tent, you know? Like, just doing the math there, she's like, you know what, Jacob, I think it might be a good idea for you to go visit Uncle Laban, you know? And so she sends him away. And, and Jacob goes on his way to Laban, what I like for, about the story here is that then Jacob has the original stairway to heaven, right? I bet you didn't know that was in the Bible. It is, right? Jacob has this dream, and there's a ladder that goes up to heaven. The angels are going up and down, and within that dream, God shows up, and God says, Jacob, I am with you. I'll protect you. I'll always be there for you. And that's why God's the hero of the story, because right from there you learn that Jacob has done so many terrible things at this point, God does not forsake him. Jacob has not been perfect. God still loves him. Jacob has not been faithful. God is still faithful. That's why God is the hero of the story. So he has this stairway to heaven. He wakes up in the morning. He goes, wow, that was kind of cool. Stairway to heaven. Angels going up and down, right? I'm going to call this place the house of God, Bethel or Bethel. 
He says, that's kind of important. God showed up here. But then he continues on his journey, and he shows up to this foreign land, and he thinks he might be in Laban's country. He's not sure, and they get to a well. And at the well, he sees this girl who's kind of cute, so he's like, well, get ready, you know? And before he interacts with her, he starts asking questions, you know? And, and, and as he's interacting with her, he finds out this is actually his cousin, Rachel. And, and, and Rachel's father is his uncle, Laban, and he's so overjoyed. And when he goes back to Laban, they kind of have like a party. They celebrate. You know, they come together and they're hugging. Everything's happy. And I like to call this the last best point of their relationship. After this, everything is downhill, right? Like they loved each other. They're so happy. He's arrived. Or I haven't seen Rachel. I haven't seen my sister Rebecca in so many years. You're her son. Welcome. This is great. And then it's all downhill. All of it. Because the first thing that happens is after the big celebration is, I think it's about a month later, a couple weeks later, Laban shows up and he's like, hey, um, Jacob. <laughs> yeah, so I got sons that work for me. I got servants that work for me. You're just hanging around the tent, you know. Like, I don't know what y'all do in that country, but, like, you got to work. <laughs> like, you got to do something, you know. And, and Jacob's smart, you know. He's like, you're right. I do have to work. But how about this? I'll make you a deal. I will work for seven years if you will let me marry Rachel. And Laban, who probably starts off thinking, I just want you to get out the tent, you know? Now you're offering seven years of free labor. He's like, well, that, yes, that sounds wonderful. Let's do it, you know? And so Jacob works for seven years. And the deal is after seven years, he's supposed to marry Rachel. And, and after he works for seven years, you know, now I don't know. I wasn't there back then. Like, I don't know what they ate. You know, I don't even know what they drank. But something happens to Jacob that he's supposed to marry Rachel, and it's not till the morning that he realizes, oh, my gosh, I didn't marry Rachel. Right? Like, I don't know what he ate or drank, but something. Right? And, and so he wakes up and he realizes, oh, wow, this isn't Rachel. So he goes to Laban. Laban's like, um, yeah, I know you're from a, a distant land, you know, but, but in our country, in our land, it's just not proper for the, the younger daughter to get married before the older daughter. It's just not proper, you know? And, and Jacob is like, but you promised Rachel. Again, this is a relationship built on mistrust and, and, and harming each other, right? Um, and, and, and Jacob's like, but that's what you promised. And Laban, and actually I want to thank Sheldon Sawatsky because I don't know if it's my Sunday school teacher, but I had always thought he worked seven more years before Rachel. But no, it's right there in the text, right? He actually was like, hey, after your honeymoon with Leah, you can marry Rachel if you'll work seven more years. So it wasn't like he worked seven and then got Rachel. No, it was like you can marry her after your honeymoon with Leah after this week, but then you got to work for me seven more years. Again, biblical family, right? The whole thing is built on lies, mistrust, deceiving, deception. And he does it. And he marries Rachel and then works seven more years. But they also, you know, they followed the cultural sexual mores of that day. So, so not only does he marry Leah, but in that culture it was okay to, to hand over another woman as a maid or as a servant for Leah. Now, now, some people believe that the two women, so Leah got a, a lady by the name of Zilpah, and Rachel got a lady named Bilhah. Now, some people believe that these were also half-daughters, so they were sisters to them. 
You do with that whatever you want. Some people actually think Laban was not really a nice guy, so he also took over people. And when he took over people, he took these ladies as like slaves and gave them to his daughters. Again, do whatever you want with that. All we know is that the sexual more of that society said this was okay. So Jacob goes from single and wanting Rachel to now being given Leah and Zilpah, Rachel and Bilhah, and the family grows. Right? He has 12 sons, one daughter. The 12 sons eventually become, Jacob becomes Israel, and the sons become the tribes of Israel. And these four women are the ones who born these sons. But also, and daughter, but also, though, Jacob's flock begins to grow. At this point, he's worked for at least 14 years without pay. So he goes before Laban again. He says, hey, um, if it's okay with you, can I have, like, you know, like the, the speckled and, like, the spotted and, you know, like, like not the clean ones, you know, like the, 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 the speckled ones, you know? And Laban's like, I mean, if you really want to, like, sure. Like, I don't got to pay you anything. You'll take those ones I don't like anyway. Great. And then there's a little bit of sorcery, a little bit of trickery. Jacob doesn't stop being wily. You know, he doesn't stop being smart or conniving, whatever you want to do with that, you know. And so he sets up this system where basically he would have, as soon as, you know, he set up a system where they're separating the sheep, but he would have it that as soon as his sheep were hungry, they would have access to food. So naturally what happens to his sheep? They grow stronger. He would also set up that as soon as they were in mating season, they would procreate. So what happens to the sheep? They keep growing and growing and growing. Needless to say, this doesn't go over well, right? Laban has sons, and they're watching. This guy who used to work for free now has more flock than us. And you have to understand, maybe they're fighting for their father's honor. But part of me, the cynic in me says, no, no, they're thinking about Laban's going to die someday, you know. And we're supposed to inherit all this thing. And now Jacob has more than us. What kind of sense does that make, right? Like, how come Jacob has way more than us? And then Laban, when his sons are fighting, arguing, and they hear this, his attitude towards Jacob changes too. Because now he's realizing that, have I been tricked? Or why is it that you have way more than I do? And then, again, tension in the biblical family. But then God shows up. And I love that when God shows up to Jacob, it's been years upon years upon years. And God says, Jacob, remember the stairway to heaven. Remember that dream when I said, I will be your God. I will always be there for you. Remember the God of Bethel. That's me. I'm still here for you. I see what's happening. But it's time to go home. And one of the things that's interesting about this is Leah and Rachel, they hear this, like, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, you know? And I always struggle with that because I'm just like, I mean, this is all they knew. They were willing to leave their family. I know it's their husband, but, I mean, there's also three other of them, you know? So it's not like a traditional love story. Like, how can they leave all that they knew? But there's a line here in Genesis where Leah and Rachel says, our father has treated us as foreigners. And what that means is, you know, if you dig a little bit deeper, what you find out is that not only does Jacob have a grievance against Laban, but so do Leah and Rachel. Because by not paying Jacob, it's affecting their livelihood. That's the first one. The second one is, in that culture, yes, the, the husband had to pay a bride price, but that bride price was protection, actually, for the woman in case something happened. If something happens to the man, like, that woman might not be able to remarry. So the bride price was kind of like her security and, like, to provide for her for the rest of their life. And Laban had not only kept the money for himself, 
he had not actively provided for his own daughters. He had not actively provided for them, so much so that they're like, hey, we might as well be foreigners because to our own father, he's not provided for us. So now you can understand why they're like, you know what? I mean, if Jacob's leaving, we got the brothers who are mad at Jacob. They're mad because they don't have enough. Dad's not providing for us. Hey, honey, that sounds great. Let's go. You know, let's get the caravan going. And they choose to leave. The other thing that's interesting here too, though, is that Rachel, the favorite, right? Like, again, Jacob, we're all products of our environment, right? Jacob grew in a setting where his parents had favorites. So he's like, I want a favorite wife. And Rachel was the favorite. And Rachel actually goes and, and she steals some of her father's gods. And this is tricky for us because we're like, what are you talking about? Now, now it, was, it was either, you know, people believe that it was, it, was, it was little idols. Now, it was either that after someone in your family died, you'd make a little idol, well, idol. You'd make a little figure of them as a remembrance. Or it literally was an idol that you would pray to. But more than likely... It was just a good luck charm, you know? So when I read this, I'm like, oh, look at this heathen. She's taking idols, right? But there's also something to say that, like, she's going to a new land, you know, and she wants her good luck charm. So, like, it's not just, oh, she's going to worship these idols. It's you might have a favorite bracelet that if you're going to a new country, you want to take. It's also, so it's a combination of both, right? And, and Jacob and his sovereignty, I guess his, his smartness is, one of the things that he does right in this story is that when he finally finds out about the idols, he throws them out, right? He's like, we got God, we don't need good luck charms, right? But at some point, she takes these idols, and they get in the caravan, and they go. It did, Jacob at the time had set it up so that he was three days away from Laban because they had split up the flocks, and he wanted time, right? So it took Laban three days to find out what had happened, and then Laban finds out his cash cow, Jacob, has left. His daughters and grandchildren are gone. His future is kind of in peril. So Laban pursues Jacob in anger. And the word that's used here is a very fascinating word. It's a Hebrew word, radaf. Radaf, every other time in the Bible, literally means to chase you down until you're conquered. Laban wasn't seeking reconciliation. He was seeking justice in Laban's name. Jacob and Esau, when they finally got together, Esau, Radaf, Esau was seeking reconciliation. No, Esau was seeking justice in Esau's name. Radaf means to chase you down until you're conquered. Laban is angry. He's been aggrieved. And now he's going to go and set things straight. But there's something else that's interesting about this word Radaf. It shows up one other place in the Bible. It shows up in Psalm 23. It's a verse that many of us are familiar with. You have to remember, one of the things I love about Scripture is that David doesn't invent anything about God. David is two things, if nothing else, a shepherd and a king. And when he looks at how he's a shepherd and he's a king, he goes, oh, my gosh, I'm a shepherd, guys, but guess what? God's my shepherd, you know? Like, guys, I'm a king, but God's the king of all kings. He doesn't invent anything new. But David's also a warrior. And that verse that some of us read is like, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. We think of follow there as like a shadow, you know. Well, he's God. He'll always love us. He follows us. The word for follow there is radaf. And David, the warrior king, is saying, surely God's love. Surely God always doing what's best for me. Surely God in his goodness will chase me down until I'm captured. That's what it means, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. It doesn't mean God's a shadow. It means he will chase me down until I'm captured by his love. 
And that's what's happening here. Laban wants to radaf Jacob, and it's not going to be reconciliation. It's going to be vengeance is mine, says the Laban. But before he reaches Jacob, God shows up again. And God says, hey, Laban, do not touch Jacob. Don't say anything cross with Jacob. Know that I'm watching over you. And you would think that would be enough. Just like for some of us, we know God's commands and we still break them, right? You would think that would be enough. God shows up and be like, don't mess with Jacob. But Laban still chases him down. And when he chases him down, they have this big blowout, right? You know, it's like the big fight. It's like we're going to put it all out there. And Laban is like, my daughters who I love, you've taken them from me. And you as a writer on the side is just like, yo, you didn't even provide for your daughters. How much do you really love them, you know? But that, that's just a side count, right? But he's like, my daughters who I love, my grandchildren, I didn't get to kiss them and say goodbye. How you've grieved me. How would you do such a thing to me? And Jacob has a great one line in here that I love. He's like, um, but Laban, you've not paid me for all this time, but you've also messed with my pay ten times. You know? And you could do a little bit of deductive reasoning here. When people are complaining about messing with their pay ten times, there's a good chance you didn't give them ten raises, right? There's a good chance if you give them ten raises, they're not complaining, right? But like Laban feels aggrieved and Jacob's like, how can I stay with you? You know, not only do we have all this tension, all this mistrust, but every time I go to you to pay, you cut it some more. And they have all this. And the reason I like this story is because of how it ends. And what I like to tell us this morning is simply this. If Jacob and Laban can get to a pace of peace and reconciliation, how much more shall we? How much more are we called? We don't have the level of mistrust that they had. We don't have the level of anger that they have. We don't have the level of misdeeds that they have. How much more shall we be called to peace and reconciliation? Jacob and Laban come together now, and they set up a pillar and a heap. And they, they, they said, you know, this is going to be a witness between you and me. They pledged before God as a witness, and I love the prayer of Mizpah. Let God watch over you and me even when we are apart. It's a prayer, you know, before Harrisburg, I never lived anywhere two to three years. That was like my max. Like three is like, it's time to go, you know. Um, and because of that, this prayer of Mizpah has been a prayer on my heart. Since I was five, probably. Because I'm so used to all these changes, you know. And it's this trust of like, we're not together anymore, but God is with you. Praise God. He's going to watch over you. And it's a great prayer because, you know, my, my kid's are only six and about to be four. And I'm already worried about college, you know. And I'm like, Miss Pa, you know, Miss Pa, you know, God watches. It's the same thing with kindergarten. That's a scary place too, you know. It's just like, God watch over you while we're apart. But the thing about this prayer, though, is that when they come here and they pledge before God is witness to watch over them, they also pledge to do no harm to each other. And then they break bread and they say their goodbyes. And I love this story and how it ends because I believe if Jacob and Laban can find peace and reconciliation, so can we. You must remember that this is not, I said, the, the opening scene is probably the best part of their whole story, right? Like they loved each other, they smile, like everyone's happy, and then it's all downhill for decades upon decades of mistrust. Yet they find peace and reconciliation. 
They had a life that was built on deception and mistrust. They both felt aggrieved and they both harmed each other. They both ignored the pains that were within and they just let it fester and fester and fester. Yet God calls them to peace and reconciliation. The same that he calls us to peace and reconciliation. We may not have the level of deception and hurt that Jacob and Laban felt. But we got some deception and hurt. All of us in this room have been aggrieved by someone. One of the hardest part of the human experience is that the people we're most vulnerable with can sometimes hurt us the most. The people that we let in can sometimes do the most damage. The people that we love the most can sometimes break us the easiest. But God still calls us to peace and reconciliation. And to not just peace and reconciliation, but to redaf, to chase down peace and reconciliation until it happens. They both did harm. And sometimes when we think about our broken relationships, it's good to think about, you know, how do I have reconciliation with someone who harmed me? But sometimes the harder question is, how do I have reconciliation with someone I harmed? They both ignored pains and let it fester. We're called to forgive, not forget. Your trauma is real. The pain that you went through is real. Your hurt is real. When God calls you to forgive, it doesn't mean you just wipe it over and forget. But the reason I believe God calls us to forgive is if you look down at your forearm, Imagine having a real deep cut in your forearm, the kind that if it leaves untreated will be infected. Imagine that cut. Now, every time you choose not to forgive, it's letting that cut fester. And when that cut gets infected, it makes it hard for you to do anything. You sit down, it hurts. You put your hand on your lap, it hurts. You walk, it hurts. And it just festers and festers and festers. Why you're called to forgive is the same reason you're called to take care of that cut. Because if you take the time to treat that cut, it can heal. You might have scars, but it can still be healed. But if we don't forgive, if we don't forgive, the cut infects us. And then it infects the people around us. And it infects every single thing we think, we say, we do. That's why we are to forgive. That's why God calls us to not just pursue peace and reconciliation, but to chase it down until we capture peace and reconciliation. And here at HBIC, it's the heart of part of our DNA. It's why, you know, we think that part of our work is to help people learn about everything about each other, yes, but to also learn about the world they're in and to call them not to the, 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 the trial and the path of this world, but the path of Jesus' kingdom that allows us to reject some of the things of this world for the things of Christ. But it's also a call to help us connect, to help us be woven together. And one of the things that's fascinating is people always say, like, I want to get connected. I want to get connected. And I always tell them, you know, in this country, we believe that the political aisle is just so hard to bridge. But the thing at HBIC is we got two aisles, not one. And we got two services, so now we're up to four. And there's some people who are just like, I really would like to go to lunch with her, but she sits all the way on the prayer room side. You know, I just don't know if I'll ever really see her, you know. Or like, I, I, I think I love what they shared in that prayer, but they go to second service and, you know, the real people, you know, it's just, I don't see them ever, right? 
The job of connecting is yours. The job of peace and reconciliation is your work. God calls us to do the work. And we as a church, you know, we have fellowship dinner groups. We have small groups. Uh, we have all these different things that we're going to try. But here's the truth. You can't connect if you don't connect. You have to be willing to do that work and take that step. And the thing about our DNA is that we do sometimes very well to focus on the macro. This is why we say we're the life people. From womb to the tomb and all through the life, we choose life over death. It's why we choose justice over systemic harm. It's why something like racism isn't just what affects black and brown. It's what affects all of us because if we're truly members of one another, then when you hurt, I hurt. And when I hurt, you hurt. And that's a sign that we belong to each other. And if the body of Christ is just a theology that you think about, then you miss the point of the body of Christ. And I always tell people, when you stub your toe, you don't go, well, you know, 98.9% .9 of my body's working great. Right? You don't go, man, my elbow's just so good today. Your entire focus goes to your toe. And I have a friend who used to go to this church, and he goes, the beautiful thing about swelling. And I always go, what's the beautiful thing about swelling? That sounds weird. What are you, a doctor or something? He is. The beautiful thing about swelling is it's the body's natural reaction to protect the hurt area. And if we're truly the body of Christ, that should be our natural reaction. When our sister and brother has been victimized, or our sister and brother are facing racial oppression or racial injustice, our reaction shouldn't be like, well, I'm doing good. I'm good. My elbow's working great today. Your natural reaction should be to protect that vulnerable person. Because our scripture might say least of these, but in God's kingdom there is no least of these. In God's kingdom, we're all equal. We're all God's children. But I think the harder work isn't the macro. Because I can have good theology. I can have proper thinking. But what happens if it doesn't show up in my life? I can believe that there's systemic racism. But what happens if I look in my phone and the 10 people I call the most all look like me? I can believe that this church is great about diversity, and, and I, I love the Mosaics meal. And I'm like, well, I'm good now. I got my one meal, and I've got to eat with someone who's different than me for another year. See y'all next February. It's not enough to have right thinking if you don't have right living. It's not enough to have the macro if you're not living the micro. You can't tell me you believe in systemic injustice when I come to you and you don't love me. You can't tell me you believe that I am one with you when I'm hurting and it doesn't affect you at all. But the most important part of micro is this. This is our witness to each other and the world. The reason we are to seek peace and pursue it is because it's our opportunity to glorify God. You know, in Psalm 34... David has this fascinating scene where he's before a, a Philistine king and he's fearing for his life. And, and like, well, it's some of us, but maybe it's just me, you know. Um, but like some people, when they fear for their life, they act a little mad, a little wild, right? And David is going to say, I'm going to fake like I'm insane right now. Cause, and, and, and it works. And the king looks at him and is like, yeah, this ain't, this ain't good for optics. We go around killing people who are mad. That's just not good for politics. Like, it's just not a good idea. But what I love in this story is that in the middle of David's faked madness, he sings this song. 
And this song is, is, is captured in Psalm 34. And there's this verse that I think is just truth from God, speaking even through the madness of David's situation. And it simply says, come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. When we say we pursue peace and reconciliation, it's a commitment to keep our tongue from evil. It's a commitment to let gossip end in that person's mouth and not enter our own and spread around. It's a commitment. When we see something that's evil, it's a commitment to turning from that evil. It's a commitment to seeking peace and pursue it. And remember the word here is radaf. Meaning that I will chase down peace until it's captured. I will chase down reconciliation until it's captured. Seek peace and pursue it. It's your witness to each other and to your world. And remember what Jesus said. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. You can't make peace when something's already peaceful. If you go to a lake and the lake is just perfectly peaceful, you can't go there and add to the peace of the lake. You can't go there and be like, you know what, I know you're still right now, but now that I'm here, feel my presence, lake. You're even more peaceful now, right? You can only make peace where there isn't peace. This is our commitment. This is what it means to following God. And remember, Jesus says, they will be called the children of God. Jesus seems to believe that if you live to make peace where there's no peace, that you look like our Father in heaven. That the peacemakers are the ones who actually go out and bring peace to the hard situations, to the darkness, to the brokenness. They work to bring peace there. And then, this is probably the hardest part of our witness. We read it in our scripture this morning, but in Colossians 3, Paul writes it like this. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Our work in pursuing peace is forgiving. And forgiveness, again, doesn't mean that I still don't have this gash in my arm. It doesn't mean that it still doesn't, shouldn't be treated. It doesn't mean that I'm just going to forgive and now forget about the gash in my arm, right? But it does mean that I'll stop letting the pain poison me as best as I can. It does mean, though, and I think Paul ramps it up. And you have to remember what Paul got, he got from Jesus. Because you'll have to remember something that I think we sometimes forget. We think of God's forgiveness as kind of like God's love. He's God. He loves me. He's God. He forgives me. But I want to remind you of something Jesus said in Matthew 6. After he taught us how to pray. I want to remind you and I want you to hear Jesus on this because Jesus is God. And this is what Jesus says about forgiveness and another reason why you should forgive. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, 
your father will not forgive your sins. That should be sobering. A lot of us don't like that verse, you know? Forgive us our debt as we forgive. Yeah, that sounds good, right? God, forgive us. You're God. You're beautiful. You're big. You're awesome. But according to Jesus, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Jesus seems to believe, and I'm going to side with him because he's God, that if we don't forgive, God may not forgive us. That if we don't forgive, not only do we not look like God, not only are we not honoring God, not only are we not listening and submitting to the Spirit, but God won't forgive us if we won't forgive each other. And that should be sobering first, challenging second, and a way of life last. Forgive because you've been forgiven. And then comes this passage in Matthew 18. There's a couple passages in life that I'm like, oh, that changed my life. This is one of them. In Matthew 18, Jesus talks about how we deal with, you know, sinning and hurting one another. In Matthew 18, he lays it out like this. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Jesus lays it out. To live in proximity, to live in relationship, to live in vulnerability means that we sometimes will hurt each other. And Jesus says, if your sister or your brother sins against you, go to them and point it out. Go to them and see if you can work it out. If that doesn't work, find two or three people you both respect to kind of have that intervention, right? And so that you can work it out within that group. And if that doesn't work, take it to the church. Or I think what Jesus really means is take it to Pastor Linda. You just take it that way. You just take it over there and that will be handled, right? But again, right, if your sister or brother harm you, you try to work it out. And if that doesn't work, you got two or three people you, you, you both love and respect, and you try to work it out. And if that doesn't work, you take it to Pastor Linda. You take it to the church, right? You take it to the church. And then Jesus has a kind of harsh word. And he says, well, if that doesn't work, you got to treat them as someone who doesn't belong to you and someone who just wants to take advantage of you. Pagan tax collector. And at first I'm just like, that doesn't seem like it fits. But I think what Jesus is saying is pursue peace and reconciliation. Y'all two got to work it out. And if that doesn't work, get people you trust. And if that doesn't work, get the church. And if that doesn't work, then you're just not following me and you're taking advantage of each other. That's where you land. And then I love this last part because it calls us back to Jacob and Laban because he says, remember that peace and reconciliation you do on earth It'll be honored in heaven. Because whatever you bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And then comes one of the most misinterpreted verses in all of creation, right? We love this verse for worship. And this will go into next week's service where we talk about what is worship. It's everything we do, right? But we love this word for Sunday morning, right? 
most of us have said it or been in churches where it's like Sunday morning, we're like, and where two or three are gathered, there God is, right? But it's not in context of this verse. You know, most of us don't struggle with like, when we come to church and worship God, two or three of us, God is there. But what Jesus is saying isn't that. Jesus is saying, in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the conflict, in the midst of the relationship not being as it be, there I am in the midst of it. And that changes it for me. Because I have no problem worshiping God when, when we gather together. That's easy. But it's a little bit harder when we're not getting along. It's a little bit harder when there's real hurt between us for me to be like, yep, God's here too, you know? Like, I don't want him to be there. Like, I want him to be in church. That's where he belongs, right? I want him to be in church, right? But that's what Jesus is saying, and it's a reminder to us that we don't get to say, I'm going to keep this relationship broken, and that's just going to stay in that compartment. Because Jesus says, no, 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 no. There I am in the midst. Jesus says, when you're struggling, when you're broken, when it's not as it should be, remember that the two of you together still has me in the middle. God is the witness between you and me. That's why we seek peace and reconciliation. We're going to end our service by singing um, a kind of familiar tune to us now, Waymaker. But as we sing this song, I want to invite up the intercessors. I want to invite up anyone, any pastors in the room as well. We'd love to pray for you. But as you sing this song, I just want you to be reminded that whatever broken relationship you have, God can heal. And that that broken relationship doesn't mean that your hurt doesn't matter or that your hurt isn't legit. It just means that God wants that hurt to stop poisoning you. And God wants you to be free and on the path to healing. That's the God we serve. That's the God who's our way maker. That's the God of Laban, the God of Jacob, the God of Hbic, the God of you, and the God of me. Let's stand and sing together. You are here, you are here to be loved. 
worship you. I worship you. You are here. You are here. Mending every heart. I worship you. I worship you. Waymaker, you are. Waymaker, miracle work, promise keeper. Light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. Waymaker, Waymaker, miracle work, promise keeper. Light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. Sing, Waymaker, Waymaker, miracle work, promise keeper. Light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. Waymaker, waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper. Light in the darkness, my God, that is who, that is who you are. 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 Even when, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. Never even when, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop. Even when, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop. Over time, even when. I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Our Father and our God, we thank you that even though you watch over this whole world, you watch over us. Even though you're a witness of everything that happens, Lord, you choose to be a witness where two or three are gathered. God, we thank you that you forgive us so that we can be free to forgive. You love us so that we can be free to love. God, help us to be a people who chase down peace until it's captured, who chase reconciliation until it's captured. Help us to be a people who look like our Father in heaven, who live to glorify him. Help us to be a people who live to honor God, submit to the Spirit, and love like Jesus Christ. In his holy and precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Wait.